With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're going to get going now. Um, Hello, everyone. It's Mike Pareda here. Welcome to this week's Limited Upside Locker Room Live Chat. Uh, I'm Mike Pareda. We are talking this week about a couple weeks ago, we talked about the teams in the middle of the NBA. This week, we're talking about the eight teams that I consider to be legit contenders. Uh, You may disagree with the list, I suppose. But if you look at point differentials, if you look at records, I think there's a clear demarcation in the state of the NBA. And those eight teams being the Utah Jazz, Phoenix Suns, uh, Denver Nuggets, who I think we should probably talk about first, although there are a lot of questions we got on Twitter, and I'd want to hear from all of you about things that we we need to talk about um, with these eight teams. And pretty much anything goes with these eight teams. Uh, people still can't hear me. Uh, anyway, um, I'm trying to figure out what's the problem. Uh, very strange. Anyway, uh, so I was, I guess we'll kind of have to play this thing by ear. Sorry about the concerns. If this doesn't work, I'll just sort of play through on my phone. Uh, but we are going to talk about the Jazz, the Suns, the Nuggets, who are obviously in the news very much of late, the Lakers and the Clippers in the West, and then the Bucks, Nets, and 76ers in the East. Ben will be on a little bit later. Uh, we got a lot of questions. Um, does any... I know there was at least one speaker request earlier um, that I totally screwed up and missed. Uh, so we can start there, but... If not, uh, we should probably start by talking about the Denver Nuggets unless someone wants to talk about something else. Uh, if anyone is in the room. Ah, we have a speaker request. Okay. Hey. Hi. So I had a question. Um, how important do you think it is to get the one seed in the East and avoid having to play two of the, you know, the two of the top three teams in the conference to get to the finals. It is. Hey, hey, uh, is it Eshin? Yeah, Ishan. Okay. Ishan, Ishan. Sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to mispronounce. Yeah, the no, number no, one scene, the, the East is sort of an interesting, I mean, we should probably take a step back and kind of talk about seeding in general. I think it's definitely clear that of all the seeding battles that are going on in the NBA, the one seed in the East is probably the most important because of what you have said, where you only have to beat one of your two primary contenders, given the state of mediocrity in the East. Now, that, of course, assumes that it remains this list, uh, and there's not a team that sort of starts to charge on late or you don't suffer an injury. So, for example, maybe Miami 
who has played really pretty well recently. Uh, maybe they're a team that you want to kind of avoid in the four or five. Uh, maybe Boston gets it together. But I, I think in general, yes, it, it is probably true that the East number one seed is the most important. The question of seeding in general, I think, with all of these contenders is, and I, I said this today, and I think this also dovetails with the very unfortunate news about Jamal Murray, which is the risk of playing in such a tight, compressed schedule to play all out to get seeding battles when it's not the bubble, but the, we are not going to have full NBA arenas in these playoffs. So this home court advantage from that standpoint is not the same. Uh, at least in the, I would say in the West, the seventh seed is likely to be a pretty strong team, whether it's Dallas or Portland or perhaps Memphis sneaks up there. Um, so I don't think there's a huge benefit in being the two seed in the West. And in the East, like basically all those teams in that range are about the same. But how you could really get into trouble overplaying your players, getting them fatigued, getting their bodies, who are which are already in a difficult state from the fast and furious schedule that has resulted. There's a major risk, I think, of other these contenders if they try too hard for seeding having another one of their best players go down like Jamal Murray did you know Jamal Murray missed the previous four games I believe was it four games with uh with some sort of injury uh that then he comes back against the Warriors three games Asen thank you three games you missed the previous three games he comes back I saw on someone's feed, and I did not watch this game. Um, I saw on someone's feed that he was sort of, they caught him making a weird plan at one other point in the fourth quarter where it's it sort of, you almost miss it. And it didn't, it didn't forebode anything, but it was still a little bit of an awkward step. And then, of course, at the end of the game, he's going down and he makes a tough step with his other knee, his, his, uh, his left knee, I believe, uh, and he's out with that ACL. The fact that it was on the other knee in, you know, the body is such a weird thing. We don't know all these things. I'm not a doctor, although I have thought a lot about the kinesiology of the body. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but, you know, we don't know exactly for sure, but it's very, very likely that there was some element of him overcompensating that injury, we're overcompensating on that leg and then that caused that leg to go. I mean, the body is such a balanced structure that any imbalance is a real risk of any sort of injury. So it's wrong to say that like one injury caused the other, but it's also equally wrong to say that they had absolutely nothing to do with each other. So to me, like that moment for Denver, and we can talk about whether they can, they're considered a contender now. If I'm the Nets, if I'm the Sixers, if I'm the Bucks, and I think all three of these teams are doing this, or at least the Bucks certainly are with Giannis Antetokounmpo's knee issue. The uh, the Nets have done it with James Harden, with Durant. There is very little upside. The seeding upside of going all out to get a higher seed is so much less important than having my team healthy. So much less important when you consider the risk of all of these games happening. So I don't think any of these teams should be really going all out for seeding. And I think that, you know, Rob Mahoney wrote this piece about the Nets, I think on the ringer. Did you read that piece? Uh, no, no. 
it was essentially arguing and stating that kind of using the regular season to experiment with rotations and lineups is kind of the best thing they could do. So you've seen guys like Nick Claxton emerge. You've seen Bruce Brown emerge. Obviously, the whole we'll talk about Lamarcus Aldridge and whether why he's probably not the best fit for what they do, but sort of playing around with him and DeAndre Jordan, who plays for an extended period, seeing where Blake Griffin fits in, all these things they will have an effect later in the playoffs when you can go to more lineups that are more effective. The flip side of that argument for the Nets is obviously the most important thing for them is how well they play with their three stars, which they haven't gotten a lot of, but independent of the point, I guess, is that I think there are ancillary benefits to screwing with your rotation late in the season anyway. And just the the risk of losing one of your top players because they've played too many minutes, they've overcompensated some limb and they suffer the fate that's similar to Jamal Murray. I just think it's too high to be worth any sort of seating. I think it's, it's most worth it for these contenders for the East one seed, but all these other teams that are below them are going to be fighting for seeding. Like this is, I think a great, I think they need both. All these teams need to be very, very careful and conservative with going out for seeding this year, given the risks and the lessening reward. So I, that does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I think, I think all I agree with you. I think even the one seed, I think the nets, they're not really pushing too hard for it. So yeah, makes sense. So the flip side of this argument is is that however many minutes the big three have played together, it's not that many. And this is a team with a lot of new pieces. So that basically this is the rest versus rhythm argument over again. In the face of adversity, will the lack of experience of having Kyrie, Harden, and Durant on the floor, and on the flip side, the increased experience they've had without the three of them on the floor – Will that come back to bite the Nets later in the playoffs? I think that's a legitimate risk too, uh, in a different way. It's gonna. I think Steve Nash has a very difficult job ahead of him coming into the playoffs. I'm not sure. I think that in general, it's better to have your healthy players healthy than not. But I do think that there are some ancillary risks as well to have them not being on the floor together. So to me, he has a very, because some of these other teams that are in this spot, like the Clippers, like they've got some new pieces, but Kawhi, they've already done this for a year. Some of their, their key players, uh, Milwaukee, I think is pretty much proven that when Drew holiday plays, they're a different team. I don't think there's really a whole lot to prove there in terms of their stars playing together. I think perhaps they need more time for some of their other guys, you know, the Lakers, we know what LeBron and AD can do, and that's sort of the big sleeping giant. Um, the Jazz, I think they pretty well established what they can do. And I think Phoenix, we'll talk a lot about Phoenix. I think there's a lot to talk about with them. Um, I'm not saying that there's nothing to figure out for these teams, but the Nets, their stars are the ones that need to kind of play together a little bit more. So I think their task is going to be most challenging of all these teams down the stretch. But I also think they're going to, correctly err on the side of caution so that hopefully gets at that so yeah um any other questions sean or do we uh you know matt asked do the nets even need all three stars to be contenders um probably not this is actually, you know, the question of whether the Nets need all their guys. Um, what is sort of the upside? What's interesting is that when Durant goes out, Harden and K- 
Kyrie kind of slot into perfect roles for themselves. They've kind of figured out that Harden's basically the point guard and Kyrie is the shooting guard. Um, if you took as a hypothetical East team without one of those people and put him through the playoffs, like they have less of a chance, but yeah, I think they're probably contenders. The, the scenario that would be difficult for them and a lot of these other teams is what if these injuries are nagging of these stars in the playoffs where it's not that you know right off the bat, hey, we're not going to have these people on the court. It's more like kind of a situation like what Durant had with the Warriors where there's this like kind of lingering doubt and then kind of having them coming back in and out of the lineup or even not being fully themselves that really screws with their rhythm. If you, it's almost a blessing in a way that the Nuggets know that Jamal Murray's not coming back. I know that sounds kind of like a strange thing to say, um, but that's I think a blessing in a lot of in a lot of cases. So that said, I just that's a pretty good way to sort of start this discussion for sure. Though like, you know, if you are a contender, you have to be very, very, very careful with how much you play your guys down the stretch, especially of this season, less upside on the seating, much more downside on potential injury. So that's where I'm at there. Uh, and let does anyone else, if anyone else wants to speak, go for it before Ben arrives. Otherwise I'm going to get into some questions that people said on Twitter. Uh, I'll give people a few minutes if they want to kind of step up and sit and speak. So I'm not just talking to myself. Okay. All right, let's talk first about, let's see, what question do I want to answer first on this list? Uh, the the first question that you should probably hit, and I think this is sort of, does my request show up? No, it doesn't anymore. Try it again. I'll, 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 I'll set you up. Super awesome dead air. Yeah, if you if you request it again, I'll I'll uh, I'll have you all talk. But the first the first question I think to ask. Let's start in the West because we we went to the East. The West is sort of in an interesting position because the two teams with the best records in the West in the regular season are also the two teams that I think people are most skeptical of among this group of five of five before obviously the Jamal Murray injury. And so, um, hi, hi, what's up? Hey, uh, sorry. I just, uh, left the room and retreat. Okay. All right. What's your, what's your question? Uh, what do you want to talk about with contenders? I mean, I'm a Denver fan, so uh, I want to talk about Denver. Denver, um, yeah, let's talk about Denver. How despondent? Like, where are you, where is your head at with the Jamal Murray injury? Before we talk about where I'm at, um, uh, with Jamal, um, I was gonna cry nearly because I've been following him since he entered the draft. Um, it's it's around the time I started follow NBA like really really close. Um, I saw I think his coaches Calipari said he should be number one pick, and I was like. Uh, this guy is so small. How can he be? And <laughs> I mean, because in of fairness, that, Cal Parry would say that like his eighth man would be the number one pick if it weren't being picked in front of the other seven Kentucky players. Uh, so I, I didn't know that much. So I started following him and 
I saw some flashes like that he can be a really good scorer. And with Jokic, their two man game, I just love them. I just yeah. love them playing, uh, watch them playing. Um, like after the Gordon trade, I was nearly sure that Denver was gonna go to the finals. I, I didn't think they can beat Nets because uh, I just need to see the Nets firsthand. But I was pretty sure I was really comfortable with any matchup in the West. Uh, I, actually, I want the Lakers in the first round because they're not gonna be hundred percent healthy. And I thought like if you, if you're gonna get out of the West, you have to play the Lakers, I guess. So. Um, playing with them when they're not healthy, I thought that was better. I, I may be wrong. I, I don't know. Right. But now, now it looks like first round exit, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, yeah. As far as a this, obviously it's a bummer just for fans of basketball because Murray is such a, a fun player to watch. His movement, his shooting, when he gets on a roll, you know, he was one of the thrills of the bubble. Um, as far as Murray's impact on their title upside, first, it probably should first be said that like Denver is still a very good team without yeah. him. You know, how many of those eight wins were without him? At least, I mean, three of them because he missed those teams. And so I think it's wrong to write Denver off from a, like, can they win a series? I do think the problem that they run into with losing Murray is that Jokic in the regular season can play so many different roles with so many different types of ball handlers. It's why he's probably going to win MVP. It's why he's such a weapon in the postseason. But I think against a lot of these teams, and I think this is especially true if they would have faced the Jazz again, I think that this would have been a real this would have been a real challenge for the Jazz. The off-the-dribble shooting in a tight spot of Murray, there isn't anyone else on the Nuggets who can really replicate that. So now I think you're really asking Jokic not just to be he the bleeding sort of guy who touches the ball in all these areas to score to, to pass and to facilitate. There isn't really the same level of score out there uh so you can't necessarily run the same sort of two-man stuff you know there's some interesting two-man chemistry that he's developing with porter uh off the ball there's obviously gordon there's more playmaking i think that can be teased out than what has been shown but you know they don't have a they don't no longer have that guy who can kind of pull up off the dribble from anywhere and that will definitely limit their capability to put a lot of points on the board and I think it also will force them to play guys like Campazo more, which I think is really going to hurt them. They're already pretty weak at the guard spots relative to these contenders. So I I do think that this move probably, unless, of course, other injuries do end up happening, which they very well might, I do think this injury probably knocks them out of real contender status uh, because they're just not going to – they're they're not going to be any better defensively, most likely when they if they're going to play more of Composo, who's just tiny and runs around everywhere, and you know maybe they can get more out of PJ Dozier. Uh, but now I think it's also just a lot easier to, even though no a regular season team has been able to do it, and even though Jokic can play in so many different areas, it's just a lot easier now to lock in on him. You know, I thought it was interesting in the Celtics game the way that the the way that Boston really was physical with him. Uh, they would they would bump him if he tried before he tried to get into his spots. They played a lot of switching with 
you know, they, I, I believe Robert Williams was guarding Aaron Gordon and Grant Williams was on Jokic, which I think was a very interesting strategy to be, to basically have your wider body on Jokic. And I just think over the course of a long series, if he's got to deal with that over seven games, I think that's going to wear him down. And now, you know, he is going to be relied upon so much to create everything that they do. Uh, Murray kind of allows you him to kind of function more as like kind of the secondary guy, the screener, uh, the guy who frees other people. Now I think it's just going to be too much over the course of a series for Jokic to handle. Yeah, definitely. Also, uh, I just want to mention one of the uh, most underrated things of Murray's game, like how he sets up Porter Jr. and Aaron with his back strings and that kind of stuff. That's overlooked. I think st- also Steph does this a lot. You know, mm-hmm. there's a screen on the um, on the side, and the guy gets a free dunks or layups. Uh, I um, it's no, I think so that's a great point. Uh, not, uh, and the cl- end of the Clippers game, like uh, they needed a you know, as you say, a plop jump shooter, and he got them five points, and that just basically ended the game. Yeah, no, I mean, that, look, that's a great point you make about about all of those sorts of different back screens and the movement is, you know, the threat of Murray popping out and getting open opens up a lot of stuff. And the, there's just, just not the same as Monte Morris or compositors doing that's those things. Or if you play jumbo and maybe PJ Dozier plays more as, as Noah suggested, and maybe you put the ball more in Aaron Gordon's hands, you do lose that element um, of a threat. And now it's just easier to lock it on the other folks. So, Again, I think Denver is still going to be very tough because Jokic can play almost any role at any point. He's almost impossible to really game plan for because you can put him in the post, you can put him in the high post, you can have him running offense. He makes he kind of breaks all your coverages. Plus, he can just you know one minute left, uh, you need a bucket. He can get you a bucket, and then you have Porter, who's playing a lot better, who can kind of he can also just rise up and shoot from anywhere. And there is more playmaking that Gordon can handle than he has handled so far. But, yeah, I think um, Denver's offense really relies on sort of the the mixture of the threats and the chaos. And you lose so much of that with Jamal Murray. So, real bummer. Uh, yeah. Any other questions about Denver? Any other um, – anything else with them that you want to get to? No, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so that's Denver. And that's a, that's a huge bummer because I think, you know, there was a part of me that was go- was thinking about putting down $20 on Denver to win the title. Uh, I think they were the sixth or seventh in the odds uh, at that point. But now I just think it's, it's really unlikely uh, at this point. And they're obviously a super fun team to watch. On the bright side for Nuggets fans, this will be very good for Nikola Jokic's MVP case. So there's that. Okay. Let's talk about some of the other teams at the top of the, at the top of the West, Uh, because outside of Denver, we have an interesting situation where the two teams that are in first and second place are kind of seen on the different varying levels of degrees as regular season teams. And the two of the teams behind them are kind of the real sleeping giant contenders in particular, the Lakers. I don't think there's a whole lot that we can say about the Lakers right now until their stars get back. It is impressive that they have the number one defense still in the league. I think there's no question that they've got more ways that they can get points on offense, even if 
on the whole, it's probably a more limited team. You know, Schroeder as a switchbuster is an element that they didn't really have unless Rondo was playing out of his mind in the finals last year. I'm not the biggest Montrezl Harrell fan. I do think that he is helpful uh, when he is not sort of going one-on-one and isolating when he's playing more in pick and roll. There are more ways. And obviously their center rotation is an interesting question, getting Drummond. I know someone – let me see if I can find the the question on Twitter – that someone said about the Lakers in the center position. Essentially, the argument was: Are the is the Lakers' biggest threat just their own? Yes, uh, from Grango underscore the G. Is it fair to say the Lakers' biggest weakness is politics, meaning they have to play Davis at the five eighty percent of the games versus elite teams, and they have just as many bigs I expect to play in Montrez, Drummond, and Marcus Gasol to a lesser degree. I mean, ultimately, like that's no different than what happened with them last year. Uh, I don't, I guess in the grand scheme of things, Drummond, Harold Gasol, I know that they're perhaps bigger names than JaVel, Dwight, uh, and whatever, but yeah, Mark's already out of the rotation. Mark, you already kind of used for certain matchups. Um, Drummond is came here on a buyout and I know he can give you big minutes and, be helpful, and I think he's probably better than Javel. But I mean, the question of sort of playing AD at the five. I mean, yeah, that probably is their best their best slot. I think it more depends on how healthy Kuzma is and how much Caruso and Horton Tucker can play in the playoffs, and it has to do with the centers. Because when you're on a LeBron James team, you're just I mean that that's variable stuff right there. And I also don't know if it's necessarily true that the Lakers' best lineup anymore is to play LeBron at the four and the AD at the five, 80% of the time. You know, I think there may be elements of having just a lot of collective length or having the interior scoring of Harrell and pick and roll. Like, I don't think that, and I think teams are playing less small now than they were before. So I don't know if that's necessarily true. And even if it is, I I don't see it as a huge problem. We have a speaker request though. So I'm going to get to that. Brian, Brian, hello. Hey, what's going on, Mike? Thanks for having me on. What's up? Um, I just wanted to get your uh, perspective. I feel like really these next few years are going to be kind of tough to uh, get over this LeBron, Kevin Durant hump. So I guess my question kind of is, what do you think teams should do to get over this? Should we kind of wait it out? Like I'm a Celtics fan. And you know everybody's because we're we're not uh, we're underperforming expectations this year. So all these fans yes. are running around with their fucking heads cut off, like really <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out what to do. Do you think we should like plan for the future and wait it out, or do you think we should like send a guy like Kemba and maybe Marcus for try to get like a guy like Beal or something like that? I think if the Celtics can get Bradley Beal, they should get Bradley Beal. I think this sort of waiting it out existential question is kind of a academic. I mean, even the LeBron Durant era, I mean, LeBron is currently injured. Uh, the Lakers are, are fading, you know, he, who knows how good he is when he come back, comes back and Durant's on a team that he hasn't played on in the playoffs yet before. I, I just don't, I don't think that there's really 
any sort of win now versus the future dilemma. I think if you can, the real issue, the real problem that Boston has is not like sort of this like kind of question of, do we try to go for it now or later? It's that they don't have really great trade pieces to get a guy like Bradley Peel. Kemba Walker's contract is going to be a big problem for them to upgrade. And that would be true no matter what sort of posture they take as a team. So, I mean, the answer is you always try to, Build the best team you can. I don't think you really should look at where other teams are when setting your strategy as a general concept. Um, it is probably true that this title is particularly wide open, but I don't think that's necessarily because of the players. I think it's more because of COVID and just the weird nature of this season have being unable for us to get a real read on teams. So I, I just look, yeah, the Celtics should try to get Bradley Beal. They can try all they want. They're probably not the team at the front of the line there. They just don't have the right combination of players and pieces. You know, they're probably best off just trying to see what they have this year in the Williamses and all these other guys and see, go from there. Yeah. So I, I agree with most of what you said. I, um, I definitely, I was just, I, I'm not really talking specifically Bradley Beal. I don't think we would be able to sign him. Um, like you said, or trade for him. I don't think we have the pieces. Kemba doesn't really have any value right now. So doesn't really make sense. He's not really having a good year to trade him. They probably wouldn't want him. But the one thing I disagree with you with is that I really don't think that it's a, a wide open year like you were kind of saying. I just I feel like the past I mean, think about the past like 12 years. Like LeBron's been absolutely running the East and then he goes okay. to the West. He gets the championship. Yes, okay. Steph Curry, Steph and those guys like blew up. In yeah, 2015 or whatever. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a different question. Then is this year more wide open than last year? I would say, or the year before. I would say it's less wide open than last. Why? Year. I see. I don't agree with that. I, I, I think I just I can't see that the Lakers. The, there were three teams that were came into the playoffs last year as a sort of legit teams that you really had to worry about uh the bucks the lakers and the clippers those were the three teams that everyone was saying yeah these are the these are the three main contenders um the lakers ended up winning the title while losing three games in the playoffs or was it three games uh three games one game each series and then and then the two miami miami a bit of a surprise team that went far uh but same with I think the Celtics, we were not that good. Like I think, was, but yeah. so then this year, right? The Lakers are kind of a big question mark. The Nets are in their first year together. My suspicion is that the Nets will be better next year. That's just I, usually what happens in these sorts of super team eras. You get, you kind of throw these teams together and you have to figure it out. Um, Milwaukee, I think is still very much right there. Philadelphia, I think, is a team that more people need to be talking about as like a legit. The East, to me, like any of those three teams could win the East. And then you shift to the West, and the two teams that have the best records in the West are two teams that are most unproven in the playoffs. So right there, unless you're just going to say, yeah, the Jazz and Suns have no shot, that right there, you now have way more teams in the picture. And then you also toss in, I think, the fact that, you know, when you, when you talk about last year in the bubble, the Pre the bubble, the bubble itself was what made a lot of 
the wide openness of the playoffs happen. I don't think it was because entering the bubble, there were all those teams that were actually legit there. I mean, Miami was totally off the radar until the bubble. Yeah, The I bubble, agree. those conditions caused it, not the quality of the teams. This year, I think the quality of the teams are just much more all over the place, in part because of the situation. You know, maybe the better question is, you know, compare this year to 2019 if you want to throw out the bubble. Yeah. And um, 2019, I mean... You had Milwaukee, Toronto, Golden State, and then the three seed, the two seed in the West was Denver. Houston was kind of a sleeping giant a little bit, um, but as a three seed, I don't think anyone really thought Philadelphia that year was going to win the title. I mean, if you look at like raw numbers of teams, I just think there are way more teams in the mix. In 2019, didn't KD, uh, wasn't he on the Warriors? And that was the year he got hurt and Clay got hurt. Yes. So that's a that year at the beginning of the year is chalked up then. Well, I see yeah, I guess we're talking about the wide the number of teams. Like to me, I don't see a huge difference between these eight teams that we're talking about on this on this on this chat. You know, maybe one could say that it's really you could also look at it and say well it's really just going to be the nets and the lakers and because lebron's going to come back and everything's going to be fine and they have the star power but to me if you look at like kind of rough team quality i mean these eight teams are pretty close i do agree with that i totally agree i i just think that if the past 10 years has taught me anything that um that lebron's going to come back and like you said the teams like the jazz and the suns and and the jazz and the suns and the bucks they're all great in their own regards. I totally agree. And same with the Sixers. They're they're looking really scary this year. Embiid is an absolute problem. But I think that when push comes to shove, when player when teams start scheming against your best players like Simmons and, and Giannis, Giannis and the Bucks are gonna be pretty irrelevant come when you're talking uh, contender. That's what I think. They might well, I guess, the I guess conference, but I, I guess I guess uh, this all just rests on the definition of contender. I mean, it is yeah. generally true that like I mean, look, only one team can win. And it's generally true that the team with the best you have to have one of the best players in the world to do it. I think relative to that, this year is more wide open. But thank you for the thought. I, I wanna get to Noah. Um what's up? Hi, thanks. So I was just going to ask, so I was pretty impressed by what the Suns have put together the last like a uh, week, week or so, you know, they, they beat Utah in, in overtime, then they put up a pretty good fight against the Clippers, given that they were coming off, you know, back to back against Utah. What do you think, like, what do you think is like the, the X factor for Phoenix and, and, and Utah, like having a 50-50 shot against one of the LA teams? Like what? What would you say? Yeah, their, you know, most important, but also most attainable upgrade in terms of players. I mean, because they can't get any more players. Well, no, but in terms of like, like play, like scheming, you know. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I do want to. These are let, let's talk about the sun, the Jazz and the Suns. Um, and I do want to kind of shout out that there have been uh, there were a couple questions on Twitter about these teams, uh, where there was definitely. I'm just again. I'm trying to find it, but someone was asking about who. What's the Suns' closing lineup? Uh, I think that was uh, that was also Grango underscore the G. There was a question that um, from Cryptiano Ronaldo, great Twitter handle, about um, 
The criticism that the Jazz will struggle against a switching defense is valid, and if so, what teams could present problems for them? Well, we'll I want to. I will answer those in this discussion. Uh, are you more curious about Phoenix or Utah? Where do you want to start? Um, I personally think the Suns may have a better chance of you know, putting together the run, so we can start with Phoenix. What makes you say that? I'm surprised to hear that actually. Um. Ah. Uh, it's all right. Sorry, I, I need to I, like actually yeah, yeah, okay. think think of it, but I think I, I like that you know the Suns kind of have two you know legit. Uh, I mean, n- none of those guys are like you know tier one guys, but two legit creators in the half court. And I don't know. I, I just I I really like the, the collection. Well, they just added Tory Craig. The collection of guys they have on the on the wing. I mean, yes makes them very versatile. Like, for example, you know, the, the Jazz are going to be stuck putting uh, Royce O'Neal on someone who has, like, you know, a 40-pound advantage on him or, or something. So, you know, Phoenix has, like, the, the body that they can actually put on those big guys. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think their their offense is – I think it, it'll be fine in the playoffs. You know, you can just kind of scale it up or down. Okay. So – the argument for you, for Phoenix, I think you're starting to hit on it. And I, 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 for the record, like I, I think that Utah will have a better chance against these teams generally. I mean, we can talk more through this, but I think this is an, an interesting question. That the argument for Phoenix is essentially, it sounds like they have more, they have fewer defensive weak spots. Really, it's not clear if they have any. I guess the question would be, I mean, you could probably go at Booker. Uh, he has improved defensively, but you could probably go at him. You could probably – I would assume that if you're one of these teams and Booker and Aiden are on the floor at the same time, you're going to try to put those two in the two-man action. That seems to make the most sense. But your point is essentially that between Crowder, between uh, Mikael Bridges, I mean, either of those guys – I mean, certainly if you're the Clippers – and you're thinking our two best players have got to go against Crowder and Mikhail Bridges. Like that has to at least kind of annoy you. Plus you have Tory Craig waiting in the rings. You've got, I think underratedly Dario Saric playing small ball five. Uh, Chris Paul is kind of an annoying to go against like that. You may have trouble scoring in that series. Whereas if you were playing Utah, you might be able to sort of pick apart. I, pick at Gobert, move him around and do what I think the Wizards did last night, which was they put, they swung the ball around and had Beal attacking all of the moves so that Gobert was already a step behind. Or you could target Bogdanovich on defense, or you could perhaps try to target Mitchell on defense. There are definitely more options. Um, so that I think is the case for Phoenix. I think Phoenix is certainly the most stickiest defensive team out there. Plus, I mean, look, Aiton could switch out more onto some of these guys. I think there is potential for New Orleans, to Phoenix to play a more switchy style to really dig into these guys. I mean, one of the things that the Suns do so well that a lot of that I think really powers their success is that their their uh, wing players and their guards they really know how to use their body without fouling on these plays. You know, they don't surrender position easily. You know, they get their hip on you as you drive and delay you just a little bit and sort of hold you up. They recover really well uh, coming from behind. That I think is definitely annoying um, for sure. Uh, 
looking at the chat, Billy Billy Hickman. Oh. How do you rank Chris Paul, Booker, Mitchell, and Gobert for a playoff series? And in a hypothetical Jazz Suns playoff series, are the first two picks CP, CP3 and then Booker? It depends on matchup. Well, so this is an interesting question. I mean, what is I I know that um I think you could look at this a lot of different ways. I mean, the the challenge I see for Phoenix in any of these series, and I think this is true against Utah, although I know they had a really good mid-range shooting game the last time they played. I mean, that game was a terrific game they played recently. But I mean, Jazz missed a ton of threes and still nearly won it, you know. In that series, Phoenix is losing the math battle. And so they have to be hitting their mid-range shots super well. And they have to be drawing Gobert out enough so that he's going to come out enough on the Chris Paul mid-ranger so that it sets up, you know, eight and lobs or ball rotation. You know, that I actually think that's not the matchup the the Suns want. I don't think well. Oh, so I, just, I thought it was interesting. So, you know, they, they, uh, Jazz missed some threes, but then, uh, you know, the next night they go against Clippers. Clippers shoot like 45% from three, which isn't an out of character performance, and the Suns lose. So I think, you know, that's a good example of how that could swing. But also, I was actually most impressed by DeAndre Aiden, because, like, now when he's, you know, uh, playing a pick and roll when he's uh, rolling to the basket. You know, he looks like he actually knows what he's doing. He's in the right spot. He's not just, you know, kind of aimlessly uh, floating around. Like I saw someone one time. On, on like, defense, you mean? No, I'm talking about. Oh, an offense. Uh, offense. I, I remember I saw someone use uh, the meme of the weekend from the Super Bowl to describe Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I, I don't feel like he's like that on offense anymore. Actually, I was kind of frustrated against uh, the, the Clippers, you know, that they were really stepping up on the mid-range shots. And Aiden, uh, he was getting himself in position. He cleaned up a, a lot of shots. Um, he was he was great on the boards, obviously, because, you know, they were drawing out Zubac. And I've seen him, you know, like sometimes, you know, he gets that seal – so sometimes on a smaller player or like early kind of early offense and he'll just get the ball and turn around and fade away. I've seen him, you know, be a bit more aggressive actually using his yeah. body. Cause I think if he can be, if he becomes, I think I mentioned this a lot, like in one of the other locker rooms, if he can, if you cannot switch a smaller guy onto him, I think that unlocks everything for uh, for Phoenix. Because if Chris Paul and, and Devin Booker are going to be, you know, uh, drawing out bigs to like the, the elbow or something, and then Aiden is going to be in the paint against a smaller guy, if he can dominate that smaller guy and actually put you in, in a crunch, I think that would unlock everything for, for Phoenix. Yeah, so it would. Guess, it would be a big help for sure. Um, Aiden yeah, needs to I, I, a switch buster. Yeah, because, I mean, the thing about Phoenix, right, um, and I, I really don't mean this as, like, sort of a disrespectful thing to say. Um, obviously, there's a lot of skepticism about Phoenix's ability to scale up. My biggest concern with them is just offensively, they just don't have a lot of ways to score. You know, they have the eighth best offense in the league, I believe. But one of the, one of the reasons they do is, you know, they do that by kind of, plucking so much of the low-hanging fruit chris paul is just like the master at i've noticed he did he's done this a lot recently you know you get a breakaway and he's just tearing the ball up the floor and creating a two-on-one or a switch you know they're really good at 
their execution is terrific. You know, their ability to the get margins. Yeah, their their ability to get Booker and Paul into good shooting positions. They do they're the be- one of the best cutting teams in the league, maybe the best outside of Denver, you know, in terms of how they time their cuts. Mike Mikhail Bridges is just a great off the dribble player, off the catch player on spot ups. You know, he's got a great sense of timing. And Booker can light it up and he can get you a lot, whatever shot you want. Plus, they're very deep. Their second unit, I think, has been a huge revelation with Sarge playing the five. In the playoffs, I just fear that teams will kind of clamp that down and force Paul and Booker to basically dribble a lot and create a lot of offense on their own. So I think you're right that Aiton's ability to duck in against smaller players is going to be very important. Um, that is my fear. I actually, it's funny, those two games, right? So the Suns beat the Jazz and lose to the Clippers, right? And I come away from those games thinking the Suns had a bit of an unsustainably great shooting game against Utah and the Jazz had a poor game. And then I watched that Clippers game, and I feel like the Suns just kind of ran out of gas because they're on a back-to-back. Like, I think the Suns played way better <laughs> in the second game, like, even though they lost. I think that the Clippers are a better matchup for them than the Jazz are because I think the Jazz will just sort of keep squeezing you into that mid-range area, whereas, the you know, the Clippers, that defense, you can get at them. They will make transition defense mistakes. They will lose on the margins. So I actually like Clippers. that matchup better for them yeah i actually thought another issue from the clippers game is they were conceding uh switches way too easily and i mean you know giving phoenix the matchups that they wanted and then sometimes you know after they concede switch they'd realize oh we don't want this guy guarding booker so they kind of would go and like almost double team him anyway which is you know right a, a, a four on three so i think you know if, if phoenix they can squeeze out a, a all the margins i mean they, they have a legit shot i think you know those back-to-back games where there's a bit of you know luck a bit, a bit of fatigue a bit of shooting luck but they they went one one against two of the top teams yeah absolutely think, you know those are their chances yeah and i mean look the clippers have the worst defense of all these top west teams i guess we'll see about denver but you know Ooh, the actually, clippers, let me check their defense since all the clippers have the worst defense of all these top teams uh so i think that uh comes to that uh i see a couple speaker requests um i'm gonna ping billy through first uh Sirvan, i see you um uh, but i know billy you wanted to talk about the jazz and the suns relative to each other correct yeah i mean i just had some questions when i when you were bringing the conversation that way i just got like a couple questions i think kind of comparing the jazz offense to the clipper offense is kind of interesting because okay. they're, both, they're both teams that take and make a lot of threes like i, I saw on twitter yesterday or this morning the Clippers shoot like 42% from three as a team, which is like, just, that's just a ridiculous number to me. Um, Yeah. So how the jazz get all those open threes makes sense. Like it's predicated off of a go bear pick and roll. And then like the advantage back ball system Snyder has. Um, And I I think now at this point, it's kind of been well-documented that it just kind of feels like the Clippers lack a little bit of like that North South oomph. Mm -hmm. Um, So just like, conceptually i don't I, I like i can't really tell how the hell the clippers are getting open shots to a degree where they can shoot 42 percent. so just like like could you kind of just how do they that do down it me? yeah how do they do it when it seems like their offense is either like yeah like somehow they get the first domino falling to get the help and rotation they get the 
however much space Morris needs, and that's one pillar of their offense. The other pillar of their offense is like the Kawhi and Paul George ISOs, which are awesome and needed for the playoffs, but that doesn't quite explain to me how they get all those open threes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, actually add. Well, it's funny. I was going to go to you next after I kind of threw in my thoughts. So why don't you start and see if you can answer that question? Well, at least in terms of um, like, you know, their ability to generate good threes, I buy it completely. I mean, they're second in the league in the frequency of their shots. It comes from the the, the corner, 11.4%, one one percentage point below the Jazz. I mean, look, this is uh, ultimately uh, the, the, the struggle for the Clippers. They have been able, you know, to patch a, a way through it. Um, the, the Paul George, uh, the pick and roll is great because, you know, he's a, a legit uh, sh- shooting threat that that uh, draws guys. A lot of, you know, quick extra, extra passing. I mean, at the second half of the Suns game, Kawhi Leonard just decided to, you know, turn it on and, and drive. It's, you know, a buy committee thing and they're like close to you know not getting enough uh penetration but i think between i mean it's it's really i I think yeah b-ball index you know put out their like spacing whatever Mm -hmm. rankings clippers with a 99th percentile in spacing i mean it's hard when there's so many 40 percent three-point shooters spread out over the perimeter and then also since all-star break uh bach has been out and zubach has been so yeah. have a lot of the center minutes, and he he really helps with the, the downhill uh, pressure. And then also, um, Terrence Mann has emerged, and whenever he's in, he's like by far the most explosive player on the Clippers. <laughs> the power guard, Terrence Mann—that's the, the new term I'm invented. Terrence Mann and Bruce Brown running or, running pick and roll like bigs while being guards. Um, well, not even so much power; he just explodes. I mean, he attacks closeouts. He he actually pushes them in in transition. Yeah, he's he's like um, he's like if uh, he's like if you made Draymond Green a lot a little bit worse uh, and made him shorter. Uh, that sort of style of player, the kind of grab and go for who runs the the screen and roll, but he's not really a four. Yeah, I mean the the point about spacing is sort of the real key. I think uh, I don't quite know how they calculate their spacing rankings, but one thing that's very clear when watching the Clippers is that Ty Lue is very good at coaching spacing. You know, they're they're precise in standing in the slot which is sort of in that spot along the wing they are precise with their movements and their cutting so that they're cutting to get open threes and then you combine that with the threats that they have off the dribble i mean they don't have lou williams anymore but you're still looking at a lot of really good quick trigger shooters in george in batum in marcus morris in uh, Luke Kennard is playing more. And then you combine that with they find ways to get, even though they don't have that downhill attacker, and I obviously I think Leonard shows it when he wants to. The question is whether he can do it regularly. They do a lot of clever things like they put their guards in short rolls where, you know, if you trap the ball and Terrence Mann catches it, he's a smart enough player to make a decision out of that in a way that most bigs aren't. So they really did a good job inverting them. Then you mentioned Zubac as well because he can lay the wood on people and roll to the rim. I actually, it doesn't, it, the, the interesting part of like kind of the, the Clippers latching thrust, right? I think it generally is probably true. Um, but what's interesting is 
they're 28th in the league in high percentage of shots at the rim. The Suns are 29th and the Jazz are 26th. It's not you don't necessarily kind of get that thrust of the rim anymore to finish. It's obviously great to be able to finish, but you kind of have to what you really need to do is if you can't do it by having this guy who can draw the defense and kick out, you do it with really effective spacing, really quick movement and shooting. That's I think the difference between these Clippers and last year's Clippers, the the bigger concern to me, and maybe this is something that will change when Ibaka comes back, is defensively, I just don't know if they are quite as good as they were last year. You know, especially when Ibaka's not playing. I think that's a real weak spot for them, and they have a lot of offense-first guys. So, uh, Billy, does that answer your question about kind of how they generate their threes, just the precision of their spacing? Oh, actually, yeah, also, another thing about the Clippers, just to help, is, I mean, it like – all their shooters are are tall, like you know, um, uh, Kawhi, PG, Morris, Batum. Those guys are all you know, six foot seven, six foot eight, six foot nine. It's really different closing out against someone who's like six three than someone who's six eight. So you know, the margin of error for the defense is much right. smaller. Tall and and quick release in a lot of those cases, Billy. Um... Do you want? To, what did you? Does that help answer your question? Yeah, yeah that's that's a good explainer and kind of Lou bringing. I mean, I think we all remember just how awesome those seventeen Cavs were on offense. So I, I, yeah, that's sort of evolution of that. You mentioned like the 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 decline of their defense. Um, is that just simply like Kawhi either taking a step back or being on regular season mode? Or is that? I mean, it seems like the person. I mean, Beverly's been out, but other than that kind of the mainstays of the personnel are a little different is the doubt is the downgrade from Abaka to Zubac all that noticeable all that meaningful defensively I think um, yes oh, first so of all Ash, yes oh, very much I would yes. say I would say that Zubac is a better defender than Ibaka at least this year well, the, the numbers do not show that they are much worse defensively with the with Zubac in the game I think yes that is a downgrade I think Zubac has his strengths, but there's no question that you can get at, you can run pick and roll targeting certain players and targeting Zubac uh, in series. And you can basically kind of leave the two great wing players on an island defensively. Uh, I think they're, they, they they weren't great at transition defense last year. I don't think they've really improved. I think they're playing a lot of not great defensive players. I think the personnel is worse um, defensively. Yeah, they don't really have, any point guards behind well now they have man but you know reggie jackson is a large downgrade uh from pat bev yeah and i i think that they have what they have done is that they have really focused much more on shoring up their offensive flow where last year they had high per possession scoring numbers but they didn't really have a great system in place and so you saw that in the playoffs they resorted to your turn, my turn stuff. Uh, this year, I don't think that's going to be quite as much of a problem, but the, the sacrifice is that they don't have as good defensive personnel. You know, if they want to, I mean, there's just too many guys and, and Beverly again is, is older and can't hold up as, as many minutes. And so they have problems with point of attack defense, especially with the Baca out as well. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I do want to move on though. No, I'm going to boot you off real quick. And Wait, just one last stat for what it's worth since Ibaka has been out. Clippers have had the six best defense in the league. Yeah, well, I, I still don't – I think if you're looking at a playoff series, the problem – the Ibaka thing, I think the Ibaka-Zubac switch helps your offense more so than it does 
your defense. Like I think it makes your defense quite a bit worse in the playoffs, but it makes your offense better because again, now you've got somebody who's actually able to get downhill. You don't just have a bunch of spacers that teams can just kind of switch off. Um, so I think that's the trade-off there. Uh, plus, yeah. Anyway, what's um, a well, good? Well, well, it sounds like it's uh, not too many issues that playoff Rondo can't fix. So thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I look, I, I have to say, like Rondo, I know you're probably just going to disagree with me, Noah, but I mean, there are elements that Rondo provides that Lou Williams can't for that team. So. Oh no, I, I was actually, I was once, you know, we kind of transitioned to Rondo. I was going to say he's impressed me in his minute so far. I actually think he's been making a positive I- impact. I, yeah, I, I really like what I'm seeing from him. I mean, I it turns out that he kind of comes alive in certain situations. Who knew? Um, I do want to get to. Uh, is there not a new request? Oh, some I lost my speaker request. Um, while that kind of recovers, we should talk about Utah a little bit more. Um, and and yeah, as far as Phoenix too, like I, I got this question uh, a little bit, which is like, is the seventh seed assuming it's uh, there's also some Cristiano Ronaldo? Is the seventh seed, it assuming it's either Dallas or Portland, like are they a real threat to Phoenix? Um, my default position on those two teams, frankly, is that Dallas is a much better team than Portland is. Um, Portland just doesn't defend well enough. I think they've been. Very good in clutch games, but a bit unlucky, but a bit lucky as well. When Phoenix last played Portland, I think Phoenix just crushed them. I think the problem that you run into that uh, Portland ran into against Miami, which is their the aggressiveness of their their perimeter defenders, Phoenix presents that problem as well. And so I think that would be a long series. Um, obviously, there's a chance. Uh, I think. But I don't think that's a matchup that should scare the Suns that much. Dallas, I think, is a different story because they can play with much more space on the floor. I think Porzingis is a much more challenging matchup for their their collection of players. Um, and I, you know, I, I think Porzingis is having a, a pretty good season, all things considered. Uh, obviously, Luca with his size, uh, he can kind of manipulate you in a way that Lillard can't. I know you have like a lot of physical defenders, but I think I've. Luca is a much scarier proposition. Uh, and so, and I think defensively Dallas is better. So that, that matchup, yes, would scare me, but I think Dallas would scare any of these teams, you know, Dallas just beat the jazz. Like, I don't think that's a matchup the jazz won either. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily independent kind of set to just Phoenix. Um, Utah, we should talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know, like, Oh, since you're still here and I don't see another speaker request and Ben's uh, a little busy, maybe we can talk. You tell me if you're more interested, you want to talk about Utah defensively or offensively first. I mean, I think the defense probably has a couple more holes in it, but I'm like, I'm personally more interested in what they're going to do offensively because, you know, I mean, the game is offensively slanted. That's, that's okay. what I'm more interested in, at least. Okay, so the question that 
I got on Twitter, and again, I'm trying to scroll down and find it, uh, from Cryptiano Ronaldo, is the criticism is that the Jazz will struggle against what, it, what he termed a switching defense. Is that criticism valid? And if so, what teams can present problems for them? We've had Ben Dow said on the show a, number, a while back when Utah was playing their best, and he had said at the time that the Clippers and their ability to switch one through five was his concern and was his fear. I don't know. If I totally, having seen how things have played out, having seen the way that Mitchell has commandeered more of that team for better or for worse. I mean, Mitchell is playing out of his mind, but he's also going one-on-one more. He's making more plays. There is more sort of, there has been less of the kind of patented jazz motion before into the into plays. And I think that's an interesting balance that they're going to have to strike. But Part of the reason that you accept that is that the idea is that Mitchell's the guy who beats the switches. You know, you can't switch on him. To me, the more interesting concern for them offensively, uh, you know, it's not necessarily what scheme is played against them, but it's more can what happens when teams don't guard Royce O'Neal and they swarm Gobert before he rolls so that they're not rotating after he rolls. Um, They're pre-rotating off some of these guys. Um, that I think it poses a problem no matter what style of defense they play. Because if that initial roll and kick isn't there, I think there is a risk that Mitchell will start to force it too much. And that will take the Jazz out of so much of what they do. And I don't think that it really matters as much what you play on the front end of that style. It's more important what you play on the back end. What can you do to kind of anticipate? You know Gobert is going to roll the basket, Right. You know that's what he's going to do on these screens. You know that he's going to kind of come up, try to free these shooters for step-up shots, and if that doesn't work, he's going to roll. He's not a popper. So there are things that you can do as a defense on the backside to anticipate that roll and then spray out to the shooters rather than have Gobert rolling, drawing, and then Utah gets the shot you want. That I expect to see in the playoffs. What happens then for the Jazz? Do they devolve too much into Donovan Mitchell going one-on-one? That would be my fear for their offense. And I don't know if it's necessarily as much what you do on the ball, the switching style. I think it's much more what happens beneath the ball and what happens with Gobert, if they take away the threat of Gobert's roles, then I think you do run the risk of becoming more of a one-dimensional offense. Well, you know, if, if I'm playing against them, I'm trying to empower uh, Donovan Mitchell, right? I mean, Gobert... You're, trying, you're saying you're trying to get him to shoot more. Y- yeah, you're trying to, you know, instead of... You're trying to... You want to make him the focal point uh, uh, of the offense and, you know, force him into a lot of – obviously, you want to force players into tough shots, but, you know, you kind of want to let him do his thing because he, he can't uh, generate easy shots like, you know, some other, I guess, people would think of first options. Mm-hmm. He's getting better, though. Got to say. Yeah, yeah but um, it's actually interesting. I, I read this a couple of weeks ago from Rohit Nampali. I think he has a sub stack. Um just showed a sequence of plays and the Celtics were playing against the Jazz, how this, they noticed that they were s- switching. So the, I think yeah, switching on, onto Bogey. So then they ran him through like a double drag a couple plays after or, or something. I just, I mean, they're obviously, you know, aware of that. You know, maybe uh, um, Quinn Snyder can kind of mix up the, the play calling to, 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 um, to mess that up. But... 
Yeah, I mean, to me, that that speaks to me, to If you're really kind of watching how well the Jazz offense is working, it matters much less what's happening on the ball than what's happening beneath it. Because the Jazz have proven, and they proved this a bit in some of their Rocket series um, at times, that they if you switch them too much on the ball, you show too much of one coverage, they'll change their screening angle. They'll go, they'll have guys basically do what's called a ghost screen, which is you kind of run as if you're screening, but you're really just running to slip into open space. They'll run those sorts of actions with any combination of their perimeter players. And they have a lot. And as far as Bogdanovich and switching, like Bogdanovich, I think is, you can, he's taking guys down the posts and beating them. So depending on personnel, that's another option. The real problem and the real trick to why Houston made their offense so tough was not what happened on the ball. It was, the rotations they did off those shooters to come first to go bear and then spray out and make guys like O'Neal and, you know, the rest of the team, uh, O'Neal in particular, but I think it's also true of some of the other shooters who are shooting the ball really well, make them make those threes with guys running at them. And the jazz historically were historically bad at that. And, you know, I think that's really the thing because, to your point about you know letting Donovan Mitchell do his thing, the more Donovan Mitchell dribbles, the worse a player he is, and the worse everybody else is at kind of playing off him, the less jazzy they are. But the reason that he can be so effective, it's not how many shots he takes. It's what are they doing? Can they get him kind of attacking downhill? Can they kind of navigate some of the stuff that's happening off the ball so that he's kind of starting with a head start? What you want to do as much as possible when you're playing the Jazz is make them play, pause, and then Mitchell try to beat a defense by himself. And you do that by being much more pristine and early with what you do on the backside. So to me, the question of whether the Jazz will struggle against the switching defense, it's much more – the answer is yes, but you cannot think of it as like switching on the ball. You have to think about what they're doing with some of the switching and the matchups off, below the ball that determines whether they're struggle or not. And I think the Clippers potentially could be a really tough challenge in that regard. Um, but I think the biggest challenge for them ultimately is a healthy Lakers team because they just cover so much space – below the ball there's so little they give you so such a small head start when you're trying to run screen and roll though they can't surge into the screen the lakers are the team that's best at closing space when they're healthy and that i think is the most dangerous matchup for utah yeah i mean i think there's you know there's only a certain extent that the jazz can play like chess too you know eventually what do you mean by chess exactly? Or, or well, obviously, you know, they like run a, a lot of stuff. You know, uh, they're they're very good at adjusting to what the other team does. But um, like you know, playing this you know uh, four dimensional chess on offense is only going to take you so far. See, it's it's funny you say that. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, um, but I actually think that Utah. So this I think is an interesting difference between Utah and Phoenix. I think if you're I don't quite know exactly what you mean by four-dimensional chess, but like in my head, the Suns are the team that has the most set offense and sort of twist of plays that in the in the playoffs you can scout. You know, they're the team that has more of like kind of Booker running off certain pin downs, casting the ball at certain spots. They're the team where the execution 
has to be more precise. And in the playoffs, I worry about that because you can lock in on that. Utah, the threat that you have with Utah is I think that they actually don't have a whole lot of sophistication in those terms to their offense. It's a lot of just spacing and movement and kind of wide pin downs and sort of decoying one way, going to the other way. Uh, And I think that that actually, in terms of sophistication, the Utah succeeds less by your number of different entry points and more by the way that you do it. Whereas I think the Suns have more sort of set offense than Utah does. Utah, I think, has... I know it looks like they have like a, a thick playbook, but it's a lot more, I think, kind of positioning and speed of, of execution and decoy one way, throw back the other, and the timing has to be right. So, I mean, I suppose it's a different sort of chess, but uh, I think that that can hold up provided, I mean, the real question for them is they may just be overly dependent on, is there a three shot, three point shot falling? And if you can reverse engineer the structure of how they get their threes, you might have a chance. Um, because, I mean, even now, like, they do get stagnant a lot on offense, you know? Yeah, something that I don't really like about, you know, people saying this team relies too much on threes. First of all, I think um, the process in which you generate those threes matters. And two, while you can go cold, you can also go hot and just, you know, you can play right. a, a worse a, a worse game than the other team in every single way. But, you know, if your top shooters are hot, you're going to bury the other team and there's nothing you can actually do about it. So I, I don't think, you know, that that should, like, be a factor either way because I think it really all evens out. I mean, I haven't watched too much Utah, so I'm not, you know, qualified to talk, to go any deeper than this. But, I mean, it, all I'll say is that the Western playoffs are going to be really fun. Be good yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think you're generally right, yes. It's not about the number of threes. It's how you generate them and – I mean, in a lot of cases, I mean, it's hard to prove this empirically, but I think a lot of it has to do with like sort of the element of control. I mean, are you are you taking threes as the after effect of a lot of motion that gets that you get to pick out your shooter or is it you're kind of sending it to this guy because he's being left open? I think that does make a difference. And, you know, it doesn't make a difference maybe in the regular season, but it may in the playoffs. Um, You know, defensively, I think it's going to be interesting for the Jazz uh, in a lot of cases because uh, I know we're talking about the offense a lot, but, you know, they – Gobert, I am not too worried about – from a sort of he could step up and guard deep shooters – just on its face because, you know, he's better at than than most. The thing that's going to be interesting to see is can teams move the Jazz around and then go into these step-up high pick-and-rolls where Gobert maybe has to take a step one way because his own defender is falling too far behind off that movement and then he's late coming back. That, I think, is like a legit worry for them and so the off-ball motion that you see coming into those screens is going to be very important and Utah also has targeting spots on defense in a ways that other teams don't you know with Bogdanovich in particular and maybe Clarkson if he's playing so I I think there are some teams that that is going to be more of a problem of against than others Um, but I think that's a concern and it'll look like Gobert can't step up and get there in time but the real problem is that there's all this motion that gets that player separation from his primary defender off the ball. 
And so then Gobert has more of a lane to, or distance to travel and he looks worse. And by contrast, that I think is the real concern. Do you by any chance remember uh, the Clippers jazz games? I think I just watched those as a fan. I wasn't like, you know, kind of uh, rewinding and watching them intensely. Cause I think, I mean, the, the two LA teams are wildly different on offense. And I feel like, you know, the jazz defense is it's not, you know, their concerns aren't one size fits all for, for their different matchups. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think um, if I recall, I'm trying to remember, I know there's, they played a really good game in Utah, I remember, and, or in LA. And I remember they had Gobert trying to guard Pat Beverly and all those junk matchups late. I mean, that's a concern. I mean, to me, the answer there, and I said it at the time, is like, why not just put, Rudy out on the floor more if you know you're presenting the threat higher like that in and of itself is a solution um i think just the the problem will ultimately be is if you can kind of get them moving and then attack and it will really depend on how that that happens i think you said something about uh go bear kawaii matchup right yeah it's just to me, like I, it, it makes no sense to me to put him on a guard because you're just gonna, even if that guard or even if that like kind of wing is a non-shooter, if a smart team, given the the problems that some of the other Utah defenders have size-wise, in O'Neal's case, although he works hard, and perhaps speed-wise in some of the other players or both. You put Gobert even on like kind of a wing, you can kind of still he, – he can't really just stand at the rim like Andrew Bogan on Tony Allen anymore. You know, that that doesn't – the 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 player like a Beverly is going to kind of move around enough so that Gobert is going to be distracted. And then you've basically isolated your best defender completely out of any form of the play. And that doesn't make much sense to me. At least if you put – my argument is at least if you put – Gobert on a Kawhi or on ball, you might entice a team to stop, try to go one-on-one, and then you can back off and have a chance, and you ruin the challenges that your slower lateral defenders have with some of that movement. You know, you almost it's almost better to have teams attacking Gobert one-on-one than it is to have them move him around and kind of get him out of the play and then go at everybody else. That's kind of the logic I see. Uh, there. Um, yeah, I think so too. Uh, Malik Turner would like to speak. Hello, Malik. Hello. I can't hear you. Is there, is there somebody there? Okay. Well, if you recover, um, we'll try that again. Um, but that's the jazz. Um, I think we talked a lot about the West. Uh, Ishan talked about the the Clippers and their sort of rim attacking issues. We talked a little bit about that earlier in the show. Um, that'll be on the podcast. Malik, Malik, are you there? Yeah. Hi, what's up? Hey, what's going on? What's your question? I believe that my Miami Heat is the only team that has a chance to beat the Nets. Uh, why is that? Because I do not agree. Because if other teams follow our method, like really, the Bucks is probably Bucks and Philly is probably the best chance to beat them. But Nets can't stay healthy, and all you gotta do is put a wall in the paint for Giannis, and 
the Nets, I think their defense is not really there, and that's what we that's what we play. The Heat, yeah. So the the Heat are playing a lot better defensively. They are, for the record, not among the teams that are in this list because I mean they're still at five hundred. I just offensively, it's just a slog for them. I just don't think they have enough offense. Um, what they're doing on defense is interesting from the perspective of a Nets matchup, if only because they play so hyper-aggressive up on top of the ball that I think that there is a shot that perhaps they could swarm the ball. But I actually think that the real – I don't agree that they're the, the toughest team for – Brooklyn to face. I think that both the Bucks and the Sixers in different ways present problems. You know, the, the point about Giannis and building a wall on him, I mean, this is going to be the ultimate test of what Milwaukee has done this season, which is kind of to sacrifice some of their regular season wins to change up a lot of what they do on offense, to put more guys in the dunker spot, to not just have guys dotted, dotted around the court. And I think after a slow start, Giannis has played a lot better until this recent injury. And he has been deployed in more unique ways. I think Drew Holiday has been a really good fit. To me, the questions with Milwaukee are much more just like, who are the other guys other than their three best players that you can trust? Right. You know, that that to me is a real problem. Philly, though, and it's too bad Ben was caught doing too much work because I, I think Philly, they're going to play on Wednesday. It, Harden is not going to play, right? He's still out. It wouldn't my surprise me. My thing with Ben Simmons is, like when Jordan B was out, he was only putting up twelve points. Well, yeah, like, yeah, can't be doing that. But what if Joel and B's not me. out in a in a playoff series? Does that matter? Yeah, and <laughs> sure. yeah. so, is having his best year. So I've written about it before, but. The key to Embiid's offensive success and the Sixers' success, and I'm very curious to see this played out in a Nets matchup. I just think that that is the matchup that is most tactically interesting to me of like all these series. It's them and before Murray got hurt, Utah Denver would have been awesome, but now less so. Yeah. They're, oh, yeah, very sad. They're throwing the ball to Embiid, not on the block, but sort of extended out into the mid post area, he's turning and facing and their spacing is just very simple and secure. And, and Bean is just, all he has to do, he's got the, the jumper there. He can see where all the double teams are coming from. They've got a little more shooting, but more crucially, they just have a much stronger structure on these sorts of plays where it's just a lot. It's just, the game is so easy for Embiid now, you know, in a way that it wasn't when he's backing in all the time, when you're not sure uh, who he's got playing with him, when you're trying to enter from all these different angles. They have very much simplified the way that Embiid catches attacks off the dribble, facing up, and then goes. What is Brooklyn going to do to disrupt that? Because they certainly can't play Embiid straight up. I mean, no team can, but like the Nets definitely can't, <laughs> right? They would have been okay if they would have kept Jared Allen. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, Nick Claxton's playing quite well. You know, you wonder if maybe if they keep Jared Allen, does Nick Claxton get his opportunity? And maybe that's the solution. So, but I mean, there's obviously you're not going to play Embiid straight up. You're not just going to let him catch the ball and then come, you know. 
no matter what you do. I mean, Philly can do that against most regular season teams. The Nets aren't going to do that. But the Nets, what they do on defense to the degree that they play any defense is because they're doing all this junk switching and like kind of backside weak side stuff to kind of make these catches unpredictable. And they get, they either confuse the defense more often than not, they confuse themselves. Their only chance is if they, is if Embiid does not get the ball in his sweet spots. And maybe, maybe if they can do just enough to make that possible by maybe it is helping off Ben Simmons. Maybe it's also when Tybal is in the game, when, uh, some of these other guys uh, who are partic- not great shooters are in the game. Maybe it's helping off them and, and just basically almost like double teaming and zoning Embiid before he catches the ball so that he can't just get the ball in his spot, turn and face and just do whatever and read the defense easily. That's their only to shot me, to guard that team. Sorry, go ahead. To me, that's what Tobias Harris come in. Mm-hmm. Where, and what, is it more so that he's, um, getting the ball in certain spots and he's attacking pick and roll is it more what he does playing off and bead that you think is going to be more interesting and important? I'd probably say um, they both got because Tobias Harris, I think he's underrated how he's been playing. He's had a great season. Yes, he has. That while, to me, while MB um, was out, to me, Tobias Harris was the one holding it down. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, there's sort of we could we could talk a lot about sort of the relative value of Simmons versus Harris and kind of their pecking order. I think to me the important thing is that they kind of they found a way to make it work with both of them. And you know, look, there's no question that for whatever you say about Simmons on offense, defensively he's a linchpin. Uh, his ability to guard and their just collective size makes it really hard to score on them. The Nets, though, can spread them out in a way that most teams can't. So it's going to be interesting. To me, we know the Nets are going to be able to score on them or anyone. But the real question to me is if they can make it so that they are they can junk the game up enough so that Embiid doesn't get easy catches. Not because, you know, Matt Matthew is right. Like, if you play Embiid's the Nets play Embiid straight up, they have no chance. Nick Claxton maybe right. has half a chance. But, like... I mean, LaMarcus Aldridge has no chance. DeAndre Jordan has no chance. Um, there's, I mean, right. The only chance they have is that if they just make it so it's really hard for him to get the ball where he wants, they're probably going to sacrifice a lot of super easy shots. But for him, like, he'll duck in, maybe he'll get a dunk, they'll overswitch and confuse. But if they can just make it, because... Otherwise, if Embiid is able to catch the ball and control the flow of the series, I think the Sixers are, have a real shot to win that one. And no matter what the Nets do on offense, because the game will be slowed down. He'll go to the free throw line. You know, he'll slow the tempo down. The Nets won't be able to get out in transition and take advantage of all the shooters they have. You know, maybe they'll still win because they have such great shot makers. But, you know, that's a Sixers tempo. If, I think we could beat Philly. Miami, uh, yeah. I, I you know, Bam, I, um, I chose Bam Garner, um, MB. I just, I just don't think Miami has enough offense to to go far this year. I think a lot of factors made their offense much better than it was it is in the bubble. I just don't think they have enough scoring. I think you know? our key scores outside of Jimmy has to be Duncan Robinson and Tyler. 
they young, so they ain't fully consistent yet. Yeah, neither. I mean, Robinson teams are starting to scheme him a little bit better. You know, it, the thing about Miami's offense, right? And you, you obviously sound like you're a Heat fan, so you, I'm curious what you think of this. To me, when I watch them, it's like they succeeded in large part because of kind of how the flow fit together last year, and they've just had a number of situations when you combine COVID with all the roster changes, with Dragic being worse than he was last year. A lot of guys are kind of 10% worse than they were last year. Yeah, Dragic hasn't really been himself. Yeah, and those things really add up in a way that, look, I bless Jimmy Butler, and he's an amazing player, but he's not – you can't just sort of – that offense has to be humming perfectly. There are a lot of different ways that gears could get screwed up. And this season, you know, their defense seems to be as good as ever recently. But offensively, it just it requires way too much to go right to be able to generate good shots. And I just don't think you can count on that in the playoffs. You know, so I, I just – It has been helping Jimmy on the offensive side. If you get him the minutes, I think he'll do what he has to do. But then you you sacrifice defense, obviously, when he's in the game as well. Um, So I I just – it just requires – they have to work too hard to get points. And I just think that in the playoffs, I know they – you always hear defense. Yeah, and and the hear defense wins championships in the playoffs. Like most coaches are most worried about how are they going to score because the defenses are locked in. Uh, Daniel Sone asks, who guards who for the Sixers in a Nets matchup? Bet on James Harden, Tobias on Kevin Durant. That's a good question. Who, who, um, from the Sixers end, that's have, Kevin. They'll probably have Ben Simmons on probably KD because Tobias Harris, he's going to get cooked. Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know. We're assuming, um, that the starters are the starters. Um, so let's sort of work backwards here, right? So um, Embiid's going to guard whoever the biggest guy is. You know, maybe it's Jeff Green. That might be a problem. But, you know, Green, Aldridge, Jordan, whoever. I suspect that Seth Curry is probably going to check Harris because uh, I'm not sure where else he can put him where he's not at a physical disadvantage. And that leaves Simmons, Harris, and Danny Green or Shake Milton or Tybal, whoever you play in that spot. To guard the if three ben Nets Simmons, stars. If Ben Simmons is on KD, Danny Green has to be on Harden or um, Kyrie. Who's going to help Danny Green on the wing? Right, yeah. I My suspicion is that they will play Tybal more in that series, and Tybal will yeah, probably spend a lot of time on Irving. That's what I was just thinking about. You know, and if not that, then I wouldn't be surprised if Simmons is – guarding Irving I think you can live although it's not ideal you can live with putting kind of a smaller defender on Durant if he's like a clamp defender if he's like a guy that can really get into you I mean that might be Simmons too to be honest so I and Harden I think you probably are going to be stuck I guess you you see the challenge now here like Harris does have to guard one of those guys I'm not sure who it is um you know my I would probably what I would probably end up doing is I would put, probably put Simmons on Kyrie. I would play Tybal and put him on Durant. And then I would live with whoever's left guarding Harden and try to maybe use Embiid to take away the screen and roll game and make Harden a scorer. Um, I, 
I understand your point, but I think the main concern should be hard because, yes, KD is KD. You already know who that is, but I think the key to that team is hard because, to me, they're not winning. They're not winning without hard. Right. Uh, yeah. So you would put. So you're saying you would put um, uh, Ben Simmons as the as the primary defender on Harden. Um, I mean, look, the Nets are it's tough, man. <laughs> I don't know. But, I think. But at the same time, I gotta think about. I gotta put like a body on KD because. It's KD. It's like you—you you stuck at every angle. Yeah, you are. I mean, a lot of it too. I mean, the Nets again. This is why I think tempo is going to be the key to that series, right? And it, it kind of all starts with how well can the Nets junk up the game on defense and prevent Embiid from just sort of imposing his tempo will on the series. Because if they are able to junk the Sixers' offense enough to stagnate it. Whether it's changing the making it so it's not as easy for Embiid to catch the ball, making them work a little harder there. Whether it's forcing a few turnovers, whether it's even as simple as like kind of you allow a few layups, but you sort of keep the tempo of the game and keep him beat off the free throw line, then you can get out and transition more, and then all of these concerns about who guards who becomes magnified like crazy, you know. But, but battle, I, I I really want to see is KD versus Giannis. The Bucks, yeah, and that Bucks series. So, so they played an interesting game. I remember in Brooklyn early in the year. I think it went down to the wire. Uh, the Nets barely won that. I can't remember if Harden was on the team yet. Um, do you, does anyone else remember this game? I think it was like. Yeah, was, I, I think it was. I remember I was really excited to watch this. It may have been like Harden's first game or something. One of his first games, yeah. Wait, I think that yeah. game where Giannis hit a game winner. It was in Brooklyn, I remember. It was in Brooklyn. It was on a Monday. Um, was it? Was it an MLK day? Um, it, oh, it it may it may have been. It, it was on the the eighteenth. I, I just remember that there was a lot of DeAndre Jordan because I think they just made the trade and that yes. wasn't nice to watch. Yeah, so no, that that was KD Harden with no Kyrie. Oh right, Kyrie was out during that game. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it was on MLK it really day. Matter. It was. Yeah, it was a TNT game on MLK Day. I remember this now. And, yeah, there was a lot of, like, DeAndre Jordan not stepping up on Chris Middleton and picking rolls. Right? And Chris Middleton didn't get the ball down this track. Chris Middleton. And What's also that? Hard to you getting. Chris Middleton. What's the question about Chris Middleton? I'm sorry. I'm saying, like, do you trust him? For some reason, I just think he's a little overrated. See, I, I do, yes. I mean, I think. I think the the problem for Milwaukee to me is not their their top three. I mean, I know that Middleton and Holiday don't have the names, but yeah, I do, I do trust Middleton. I think you know, look, you're talking about who's a guy that can kind of make any type of shot uh, in any type of action. You can shoot over tough defenses. I mean, who's Middleton's a great tough shot maker, and so yeah, I do trust him in a playoff series and there is developing chemistry with uh, him and Giannis in the pick and roll. To me, the, the real problem, the challenge that Milwaukee is going to have, and we can talk all about some of their um, sort of changes on defense. They're switching more, their offensive changes where they put is that beyond those top three, 
I, who is who are the four and fourth and fifth guys? I mean, because on offense, they're going to let Lopez shoot threes, whoever they play, and they're going to live with the results. Um, DiVincenzo, they're going to live with him shooting threes. I think he's shown a little bit more. Um, that'd be interesting, but I think you're going to have to live with that. PJ Tucker hasn't really played much, so I don't know, like, kind of if is it really an option for them to go small with Tucker at the five at the end of games? Like maybe uh, Bobby Portis, I think is going to get worked on defense. So is Bryn Forbes. Uh, and I think Pat Connaughton is going to get worked by better offensive players on defense. It, I think the challenge you run into, that's a weak league team there. Um, but the stars of the bucks, I mean, especially if you're talking about who's going to guard who, I don't think the nets really want to see drew holiday on defense. You know, he's proven he can guard Durant and he can guard Irving better than most. Like, that's a real X factor. Um, but that the Bucks may lose these games later on when, you know, they've got more of their worst players in the game. That, to me, is kind of the real challenge. Um, as Sean asked, haven't watched the Bucks in a while. Have they gotten any better switching? Yeah, I think they've gotten better, in part because they couldn't have got been much worse. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I, I see the Bucks challenge. It's kind of, kind of deeply ironic in a lot of ways where they've lost in previous years because of Giannis's limitations in a lot of ways relative to the stars he's playing this year. I think they're most equipped and Giannis is most equipped to star and they just don't have enough elsewhere. That's my thought on them. I don't know, know if you agree. Or Malik, yeah. if you agree. Uh, well, I have a, a couple thoughts. So I think one, uh, the PJ Tucker move. I think he's he was he's going to be a, a replacement for Brooke in the closing lineup. Because I mean, uh, Brooke Lopez, you're going to stash him in the corner. Teams are going to let him shoot. Uh, PJ Tucker, you're going to stash him in the corner. Teams are going to let him shoot. But you know, the only difference is that you know PJ can switch a little bit on defense. Or I mean, Brooke has regressed uh, on that end this year, and he's kind of like a, st- a statue. Um, more of a I'm statue not, for sure yeah yeah i'm not sure if, i don't i'm not sure if Giannis has has actually changed his game much but i think they've kind of changed how they've used Giannis a bit and then you know obviously drew gives you that like uh or third or second half court uh creator i mean the bucks have been a lot more flexible i mean that's not saying much but they've been much more flexible than they have past years they're experimenting a bit i i have the same concerns as you I, they really have nothing outside of you know those those three the roster is pretty bare i i thought they should have uh kept austin rivers you know he can pretend maybe go off once give you a playoff win but, they didn't keep oh, austin yeah, rivers? am i am i missing something how did i miss this uh, oh no no i i think they, i i thought they had austin rivers i thought they Something happened with him, but they chose Jeff Teague instead of him, which... Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, right, they have Jeff Teague now. Yeah, they're just a lot of, like, can we really trust that guy to play 15 minutes, uh, key minutes in a playoff series, guys on their roster? Um, Hopefully, P.J. Tucker can uh, replace the Pat Connaughton minutes, because... Well, but but how is he going to replace his minutes when he's replacing the the Brook Lopez minutes? <laughs> well, he'll re- re- replace some of Brook's minutes and replace some of Connaughton's minutes. I don't know. It's 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 really close. You know, ho- hopefully Bud like doesn't play Giannis like thirty three minutes in you know important games. 
Yeah, it's it, it's really close. I, they'll, they'll have to do everything right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think they have a shot. I I do. I think that they are perhaps they are better than their record for a few reasons. One is that they have been kind of messing around a little bit and trying new things. Another is their point. Their um, they're what like five and seven when Drew Holiday doesn't play. Uh, now Giannis is out uh, for a bit, which I think they should be conservative about. So I think. They are in some ways more equipped than they have been in the past. I think there's no you you know that Giannis is going to take the best player if they try to like kind of isolate him this year, uh, unlike last year with Jimmy Butler. But it's just can they find enough alongside? You know, I think a lot. A big key will be like how many shots does Dante Divincenzo hit? Like, does he shoot? 38 percent from three does he shoot 42 percent or does he shoot 33 percent or worse that may determine uh their upside in the playoffs but i mean there's a lot that they can provide i'll say this like i think the nets are the favorite in the east like just because when push comes to shove they have so many guys who can just get offense and if they can control the tempo of games their defense will be less sort of illustrative like you will not see their defense be as big a problem but i think that all three of those teams are super quality teams that i could see any three of them winning i think the nets are a tricky matchup all three are all three are tricky matches for each other i'm really hoping we get some hints in this net sixers game on wednesday because i think that's a really intriguing stylistic matchup and i think any three of those teams can win the title as well as four i mean i guess it depends on what you think of utah and phoenix but i really think this is a wide open title race right now like i think like if you could tell me that any of these eight teams have made the finals and now we're we're gonna throw the heat aside, Malik. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't see them in this group. But any of the eight teams, uh, I think they're a real shot to to get all the way. Like I think it would have been, or maybe it's seven teams now because of Denver. But like I think, I think that any of those teams, and you got sort of the Lakers as the sleeping giant. You know, you can look at it the other way. You can look at um, Joe the eight that we're talking about and we were talking about at the top of the show for those who are just joining us, Utah, Phoenix, Lakers, Clippers, uh, Philly, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and then Denver pre Jamal Murray injury. Um, So, I mean, I think any of those teams, I mean, the other way you can look at it too, is that if you're the Lakers and you, you think you're getting your stars back, there isn't a team that's really separated themselves to the point where you're really scared of them. Like, I think there's a legit argument to be made that, the Lakers are still the clear favorites for the title as long as they get their stars back. Brown win this rings and beat the all healthy. He has to be the GOAT. Because nobody. If LeBron. Has, yeah. Nobody, if that's how you measure it. Like, like, you got James Harden, probably the best shoot guard scorer debatably of all time. Then you got KD, who could just go ruefully on anybody. No matter how good at defense you is, then you got Kyrie. Like a remiss. Yeah. Sorry, you're you're bre- you're breaking up a little bit, unfortunately. Everyone um, says uh, the Lakers are the favorites. Am I wrong for thinking it, 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 it's the Nets? I think. No, you know. I I think. Uh, well, one thing you know, the, the well, they're they're like uh, three you know legit contending teams in the East. So you know, the Nets ideally only have to face one of them instead of both. 
And I think we're, you know, um, not like the, the, the Lakers will have to be, you know, diminished in some way when they first get all back. Right. Like I know, you know, they pulled it all, all together last year, but you must be a bit worried about them, you know, not really playing all year. Have to be worried. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think you, th- those are legitimate worries for sure. Um, I'll just the only way I the only thing I'd say, and it's hard to know health wise, and you know that there's going to be some sort of curveball with the health that's going to throw off this equilibrium. But when I watched the end of the Lakers last year, I just saw, and I've written about Anthony Davis before um, in this regard, like the way he clogs space off the ball in so many different contexts, like. At the end of the day, all the stuff that's happening in the season, LeBron is the best player in the league, and Anthony Davis, in my opinion, is the second best player all around in the league when it matters. And if they're healthy, and I think there are a lot of examples of the supporting cast around the Lakers may even be better than last year in a lot of ways, you know, depending on how the center rotation shakes out, depending on if Horton Tucker and Caruso, uh, how they play. In the postseason, uh, I think Schroeder could really help them with dimensions that you know only Rondo provided for stretches. Like I think it'll be a lot will depend on the health and the rhythm, but I don't think that there's been a team that's been like kind of so surging ahead. I know the Nets have the names and the talent, but I do think that the Lakers have a lot of defensive answers, and the Nets don't necessarily have a Anthony Davis or LeBron answer on the other end. So yeah, I just think that the Nets, I mean, if you look at it, like there are four contenders in the West and there are three contenders in the East. So I think just like, I mean, the, the chances of winning each series, I just think the Nets have a better chance of making the finals in the first place, which is what I think gives them. Um, the That assumes they get the one seed, the favorite title. Well, Oh, oh, oh yeah, it, it does. Assuming no one sneaks up to three, I mean, we're we're out on Boston this year. I'm guessing. Well, I mean, this all what you're saying assumes that that the Nets get the one seed, which is I don't think an assumption that we can make. I think it, given the standings right now, uh, I'm not sure they're in first place right now. They're not. Um, they're a half game behind the Sixers, and I think, Ooh. and I think the Nets obviously with with Harden, I think they're going to be conservative with him. And I think it, it benefits the Nets to not chase that one seed, as we talked about at the very beginning of the show. So, I mean, yeah, I, if they don't get the one seed, and they've got to be both Brooklyn and Milwaukee to get to the finals. Like, that, I think, is a real serious challenge for them. And I do think that as great a, t- a scoring team as they have, there will be a matchup, there will be a point where a team is able to just grind them down tempo-wise and score really easily in the half court against them. Um, Crazy that Boston is not a threat this year. No, no, I don't think so. Just a a final question, if I could ask before I Mm -hmm. leave, what would you do with the Clippers uh, center rotation? How much Ibaka, how much zoo and how much uh, small ball? What is considered small ball? Who's playing the five in that scenario? Are you talking about like kind of the triple wing, Marcus Morris, yeah, Paul you George? Do, uh, Mark, Marcus Morris, I mean, Patrick Patterson, maybe just throw him in. Uh, yeah, I think Morris throws the main, main okay. uh, five. So you're saying more, maybe you're doing perhaps Morris, George, Leonard with two guards? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, well, I think a lot of it depends on the matchup, obviously. Um, I think it, I mean, the, the thing that you have to think about it as in my mind is that despite the fact that Ibaka is a better shooter than Zubac, you have to think of Ibaka at the five is your best defensive lineup. So if you have a I matchup still... where you need defense and Zubac at the five is your best offensive lineup. And I, I just think that depending on where you're looking at it, you know, if you're, if you need to prop up scoring, I think you start, you play Zubac with, with those lineups. If you need more defense, I think you play Ibaka. And that's how I would look at it personally. Uh, what do you, um, what do you think Ibaka does better de- defensively than uh, Zubac? Cause at least for me, I think Zubac is, you know, a, a big body in that, and that really helps him, you know, absorb blows from like large uh, wing creators that could be uh, driving yeah. to the rim against him. I think he protects the rim better. I mean, he can't, he's not, he's not going to move out like, you know, past X amount of feet. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's kind of it. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> I think personally, Zubac should start and Ibaka should, should, should close. And then you use his shooting to just, you know, uh, mismatch hunt to, to end the game. Uh, yeah, I mean the the thing is like if if he if Zubac is standing at the rim, in position, and you go to him, yeah, he's pretty good at at contesting that shot. The problem is that in the playoffs, what's going to happen is teams are going to move him around. They're going to kind of swing into these ball screens. They're going to set them really high up the floor. So they're going to test his ability to kind of move laterally in ways that you don't necessarily see in the regular season, and then they're going to kind of step set these step up screens super high up, whether it's at the top of the key where they make it really hard for a wing player to kind of come in and help, or it's like kind of deep on the wing. And he's going to have to have already navigated a lot of this other stuff and then step up. I think that's asking way too much of him in most of these matchups. That makes sense. I mean, I think he'll be fine against the Lakers, but. Right. So, so like, I think you have to look at these sort of rim protection stats with a grain of salt because they measure there again, you have to look at all this defensive stuff as well, because defense is very, we, we know how to measure things that produce outputs, but we don't know how to measure things that pro, don't produce outputs and something okay, like my, uh, my zoom watch take is just based on what I've watched. I don't really. No, I know. I, I, I get it, but it's even true. Like when you watch, right. They don't, it's hard to notice like kind of the screen that happens on the baseline that he just distracted by. And so he's a half step slower to come out to stop the ball. And the rhythm of the play has made it so that the guy on the ball is going to get flattened. And that's a pull up jumper, or more germanely, that's perhaps he then lunges too far and gets beat. Um, in a way that and it maybe kind of comes back uh, on your offensive class or in forces rotations like you get you just get less of that with the Baca so I think it really if if you're playing a team I think that allows that has players that can operate really far from the basket like that it I just don't think that's a great matchup for him I think it you're right you're probably right the Lakers are a better matchup because they play much more the line of scrimmage of the play is further down on the floor but when you have to stretch him out, I mean, you saw this with Marcus Gasol in the Celtics Raptors series last year. Um, the more you have to stretch out on the line of scrimmage, the more of a challenge uh, it is for a lot of these bigs. And I think Zubac 
is side to side mobility. Maybe it's pretty good for his size, but I think it's not as good as Ibaka's. Uh, and it's certainly not as good as when you decide to side to mobility and the ability to put your hand up and sort of act as a deterrent. Like that's just not something that Zubac is as good at in those settings. So when we're talking about the playoffs, I think you really have to pick and choose when do you play Zubac? It's not like you've got Montrose Harrell behind him anymore, who's just not great at either of those things. You've got Ibaka. Yeah. I mean, I didn't love Zubac against the Suns. It wasn't terrible, but they were definitely, you know, uh, putting him in tough situations. Yeah, and this at least, you know, like whoever you put in, you at least have a scheme that's going to work with, with that player. And, you know, you can go with that, whereas Harold was really just... Harold's just Harold's just good at nothing on defense. That's the problem. He was he was late at stepping out, and he didn't have the arm length. So Zubac, by comparison, looked like a much better defender. Now that it's Ibaka, uh, I don't think that is as true. Um, but we have talked for a very long time. Does anyone have any final questions before we wrap this thing up? Uh, yes, Trez is absolute food on the defensive end. Yes, he is. So you have to sort of evaluate Zubac's ability relative to who he's got now on his team. I mean, not right now, now because Ibaka's injured, and you know much of the like kind of frustration about how much Zubac played last year was probably less due to Zubac and more due to who was playing instead of him. Um, Noah basically is thanks for acting as my like acting co-host for this show. So thank you. Does anyone have any other things they want to talk about, or are we can we wrap this thing up? No, I... give everyone a few minutes. Malik, you're going to say something? No. Okay, you're going to sign off. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for participating in this chat about uh, the NBA's eight real contenders in my mind on the locker room app on Limited Upside. We'll be back again next week at 3 p.m. Uh, hopefully, we are able to kind of give all of those eight, each of those eight contenders justice in a way that kind of talks about potential weaknesses they have, uh, potential matchup nightmares. I, I appreciate everybody who sent Twitter questions in in advance. But anyway, thank you guys for jumping on. This has been the Limited Upside Locker Room Chat. Uh, thank you for joining us. Oh.